Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hey, hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast and one that we're recording on the month of the centenary of Ray Harryhausen, and I'm joined by two very special guests for our Top 10 Harryhausen Creations podcast. First of all, we have a John Walsh, trustee and filmmaker. Hi, John. Hello. And a very special guest, uh, Vanessa Harryhausen, Ray's daughter, also a trustee of the foundation and author of upcoming publication, Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema. Hello, Vanessa. Hello to you all. That's great to have all three of us here, isn't it? Because um, as much as myself and Connor normally host these podcasts, Vanessa is always present. So, you know, Vanessa, although you've popped into podcasts occasionally in the past, you're always with us, aren't you? So you're always with the foundation, the collection and Connor. And uh, you're excited today, I imagine, about the top 10, just like top of the pops, isn't it? The top 10 creatures as ranked by the world of Ray Harryhausen fans. I know it's really exciting looking at the list. It's extraordinary that some of them are not the ones I sort of expected, but um, it's, it's, it's very exciting. Well, what I think this has been a very interesting project to, to see what, what the eventual top 10 will be, but also the types of creatures that people are voting for. And uh, looking at the poll, there's some 60 different creatures from all of your father's films in there. And every single one of them has votes and, we've been posting every creature onto our social media account and there's not a single creature that we've we've posted a picture of that somebody hasn't piped up and said oh that's my favorite that's my favorite scene i remember this film so well so every one of your father's creations is somebody's favorite uh, and that's been really interesting to see just how that dynamic works what stands out to people what specific scenes from films stand out what why certain creatures have really imprinted themselves into people's imaginations so many years later uh, and so yeah this is as you say very exciting just to 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 count down the 10 the ultimate top 10 harry hosen poll now, originally this was planned to be part of the National Gallery of Scotland's wonderful Titan of Cinema exhibition, Ray Harryhausen Titan of Cinema. And of course, now that that has been slightly delayed until later in the year, this poll was going to be announced as part of the exhibition and it was going to be revealed to the press there at the location of the museum. And we were hoping to have some people come across from the from the pond, from the other side of the pond, to sit with us and look at the top 10 in front of an audience. But we've decided that we'll stick to the date. You are going to see as well as hear who the top 10 are. And of course, if you come to the National Gallery of Scotland later in the year, we hope to have a special screening on stage in front of an audience with Vanessa in a goggle box scenario with some people on the sofa. Might be uh, John Landis, uh, who knows who's going to be coming along. But um, you'll get to ask maybe some questions about the top 10 and uh, the controversies that uh, that might be there. So um, maybe if, without further ado, we should kick off perhaps with uh, number 10. 
this is only one of two black and white appearances for Ray Harryhausen's creature. The Redosaurus from The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, 1953. Which, of course, was your dad's first solo picture and uh, a film that celebrated its 67th anniversary this month. Yeah, when you see the film, it looks a little bit dated, but I mean, it is still, the, the, the creature is still done very well. Well, the landmark thing about that was because just before, when your father worked on Mighty Joe Young, there was some controversy around that because the studio had said the film cost a lot more money than it did. So through an accounting um, sort of trick, they, they put, as it were, some of the losses from RKO for that year onto Mighty Joe Young. And so people perceived that Mighty Joe Young was very expensive because of the trick photography. So, of course, when Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was, um, was greenlit, it had a very small budget, even for, even for the time, even for 1953, $200,000. So the film had to be shot very quickly, very cheaply, and where possible using stock footage. But, of course, it went on, just in box office alone at the time, to make $5 million dollars making it one of the most successful films of that year for, for dollar um, spent and dollar earned. So a great success, and I think the one that really cemented your father's career, because without Beasts and 20,000 Fathoms launching Ray Harryhausen, um, we may not have had the wonderful top ten that we, uh, we are looking at. And of course, Warner Brothers have beautifully remastered the, uh, the original film, and now it looks resplendent in its high-definition glory. But... Um, would you be hard-pressed to find a Redosaurus in a museum? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Well, it's one that your dad invented, so there, there's no end yeah. to his creative talents, inventing dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the, the, you know, the, another nice thing about that particular film is it allowed uh, your dad's career to dovetail with his best friend, Ray Bradbury, because he, of course, wrote the, the short story, The, the, the Foghorn, mm-hmm. that the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was, was based upon. So a nice, a nice crossover there, the two childhood friends, um, adult careers overlapping. Um, and that's, that's obviously something that a lot, of, a lot of people treasure as well, the, the Bradbury and Harryhausen connection there in 1953. Well, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, I had to create a mythical dinosaur, which was sort of the main menace called the Redosaurus. It's unbelievable. Everybody confuses it. They think that the Redosaurus is Ray Harryhausen uh, with a saurus put on the end of it. <laughs> Now we've left people guessing as to what's going to be the second black and white film. Well, you'll have to wait a little while to find that out. And uh, I wonder if Vanessa would like to announce number nine. It is Guanji. Absolutely, Guanji from the Valley of Guanji, and this is a this is a real dinosaur, isn't it? Because this is one that you you may find in a museum, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Is it a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Yeah, is it, I, it is a Tyrannosaurus Rex, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, don't ask me. All I know is I was too young. All I know it was my cuddly toy. 
Yeah, I've uh, I've okay. had a good chat with Alan Friswell about this. Alan is a, a dinosaur expert on top of everything else, and he uh, he was giving me a blow by blow account of all the Tyrannosaurus features and all the Allosaurus features. To be honest, to me, I would just say it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex, but uh, I know that uh, vintage dinosaur fans can be very passionate about these distinctions. So uh, I think it's fair to say that he falls into both camps. Uh, you could see a Tyrannosaurus or an Allosaurus at a natural history museum. And uh, either way, you know, Guanji is a fantastic creation. I know he's one of your favourites, Vanessa. Well, yes, it goes back to obviously my my early childhood when I was allowed to have him in my baby buggy. So instead of a doll, so that's why I like him. And somebody said something. There was a comment as well when you're out in public about it. Yeah, I think mum was at Harrods and um, some old ladies were behind us. We were in a queue in Harrods. And, um, I can't remember if it was a fish counter or some counter. And they wanted to have a look at the dolly. And so I said, sure. And they pulled back the cover and there was Wanji all in it, baring his teeth and just lying there. <laughs> and they were horrified. But um, he never scared me. You know, none of dad's creatures scared me, except for one, which I'll, I'll mention later. And that was 1969, of course, uh, The Valley of Guanji from Warner yeah. Brothers. And the film, again, beautifully restored by Warner Brothers. And, and the creature as well, um, Guanji himself or herself, um, is, in, is in pretty good nick. Its teeth are as sharp as ever. Another fantastic restoration job by Alan Friswell. And uh, yes, Al- Alan, um, Alan really worked his magic with Guanji. Guanji had, you, you may have seen in some of the sort of earlier pictures of, of the creature or, or earlier exhibitions, Guanji had kind of deteriorated over the years, um, you know, just a, as a natural result of, of, of latex deterioration. Um, and so by the time Alan came to restore that particular model, you know, the jaw had almost completely fallen away. There were all kinds of little bits and pieces that needed to be repaired. But now if you see Guanji, and he's been on exhibition uh, with the, the touring into the unknown exhibition across Europe over the last few years. He's perfect. Guanji is perfect once more. He looks like he could have just jumped off the screen in 1969. And he will be part of our Titan of Cinema exhibition in Edinburgh uh, when, when it does open. He'll be one of the centrepieces because I know people want to see Guanji. He's such a favourite. I think that film in particular is such a, a cult favourite amongst fans. It really made an impact. Uh, amongst the people who saw it in later years on DVD or on VHS. I think I think the music helps a lot too, and 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 it being sort of a cowboy film that adds a little bit of a difference, you know. And well, of course, the uh, whole animation of of all the you know Guanji and the Eohippus and and everything else is is the roping scene in that is amazing as well. Well, you know, the soundtrack got its first CD release. I think it was just last year from Intrada Records. Yeah. And it sounds wonderful. It's a very particular type of score. It particularly suits that film. Um, we were talking there, Connor, about um, Alan Friswell. For people who've heard us mention that name now a few times during this um, podcast and who may be listening to us for the first time, how very dare you listening to us for the first time and it's episode 33, but there are people out there who, who haven't um, binged listened to us even though we're on Spotify and iTunes. Um, Alan Friswell, of course, is a restoration expert, but of course he's more than that, Connor, isn't he? He had a special relationship with Ray Harryhausen himself. Yes, Alan was the, uh, the only person that Ray ever hired directly to restore his models. And I think that's such a fantastic link to have, especially for somebody like me who didn't 
meet Ray in person. It's, it's really important to me to have that, that link. But Alan didn't just repair the models. He sat down with, with Ray for hours and discussed different uh, different materials, different uh, philosophies towards restoration, how, how Ray would like to see the models being restored um, going forward. And I think one of the great things about Alan is he, he does seem to have like a photographic memory. So he remembers every word that, that he was, he was uh, given by Ray about, about how the restoration should be carried out. And many of the models in our collection, which have been restored, were, were done so during Ray's lifetime. So Alan would take take the models away, take the Allosaurus, for example, and, and repair the Allosaurus and then bring it back to your father and, and say, you know, here, here, uh, Mr. Harryhausen, I've, 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 re I've repaired the Allosaurus and this is how I did it. This is the materials I used. Uh, and sadly, since, since your dad is no longer here, we have had Alan restore, you know, so much of the rest of the collection now. And it's no exaggeration to say that the exhibitions that we've had over the last couple of years and the exhibition at the National Galleries of Scotland wouldn't be possible on the same scale without Alan's input because some of the models uh, had just deteriorated to the point where they could no longer be moved or be handled and Alan has worked his magic on some of the most iconic creations of all time. Uh, just some recent examples that pop to mind include Mighty Joe Young, Talos, Kali, and so many others, and uh, you know he's really doing a an important job. And uh, yeah, we're all very proud of Alan Vanessa. I know you love watching him work. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it sets me back to seeing Dad work in the studio at home, um, and uh, it's great seeing the the um, creativity and the techniques that Alan is using, and and knowing that Dad, you know, was happy with how Alan did restore them and is restoring them. Um, it's very comforting to see it actually, it just makes me smile. Well hopefully you'll be able to see all of Alan's creatures if you come up to the exhibition fully restored and I'd like Alan maybe to give a talk at National Gallery of Scotland and show us some before and after pictures because I love watching those makeover shows on TV where you see it before and you're like oh, horrified and you see it afterwards and you think oh lovely I'll have one of those. It was very tricky the roping sequence. It required uh, the cowboys throwing lassoes over an animated model, which would be shot later after the production. So we had a jeep uh, portraying the dinosaur, and uh, he was just outside the camera range where the split screen would be. Now, moving us on, our number eight. And it's one of the creatures that's needed one of the least amount of restorations. It's the original skeleton. So, of course, the skeleton from Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, talk about iconic, you know, it's, it's, it's right up there, you know, the, the, it's not a surprise to see these. And what do you guys think of that? Well, I love that. I liked, I liked the uh, sequence of the skeleton going up the spiral staircase. I think that is, that is so iconic. It's so daddy and, and, and the motion and everything. So I'm tickled pink. And it's such an important model in terms of the entire collection because as well as being an, an iconic sequence, it was really one of the centrepieces for the seventh voyage of Sinbad. And Ray had created artwork for the film 
uh, sort of five or six years before the movie had been released, and he was he was coming up with all these ideas. This is what I'd like to see on the big screen. You know, stop motion films up until that point had mostly been about dinosaurs or gorillas or some kind of large creature on the rampage. And if you think about it, the skeleton warrior is quite different from any of those. It's a it's a creature of mythology, and we've got this wonderful artwork. It's an iconic uh, drawing of of Sinbad fighting the skeleton, and I love the idea of Ray turning up at the the movie studio and saying, this is what I want to see on the big screen. This is what I'm going to create uh, fr from my own imagination. So to see that, that skeleton sequence uh, in 1958, and then to see the skeleton model, which as John said, is in perfect condition. And we've even reunited with this original sword and shield from 1958. So it literally could have jumped off the screen and it's the, you know, it's the best surviving original model from the collection. Um, a lot of the older models, uh, we've talked about the Redosaurus and so forth, they unfortunately did not survive from the 1950s, but the, the skeleton warrior looks fantastic. He looks like he could uh, he could uh, pick a fight with Kerwin Matthews and start round two any, any moment now. And the fascinating thing, it's another first, it was Ray's first colour film. And at the time, Ray was concerned that the uh, the film stocks that were being used wouldn't um, be sufficiently detailed and high quality enough to hide the dynamation process because right up until that point black and white had been used and black and white film photography and laboratory work had been advanced so much that Ray's classic black and white films you, you cannot see the joins as it were. So a first in terms of colour and the first of four films to be scored by the brilliant iconic Mr Bernard Herman. Or Bernard Herman, as he as he's as he's described in um, American documentaries, maybe that's the correct pronunciation. Bernard Herman, um, but the score for that film is absolutely iconic, and we often hear it on compilations of Ray's films and works, and we use it here on the podcast. What brilliant music! What brilliant music! The famous scene. Uh, it finally ended up in the cave on a spiral staircase. My original drawing showed Sinbad driving the skeleton up on the top because how do you kill death that became a problem you know and the skeleton had to go up on a height so that when he was pushed off he broke up into pieces so he couldn't fight anymore now moving us on rather aptly to number seven Yes, you've said it. You've you've stolen my thunder just like one of the gods would do to one of the other gods Too heavy for the dead branch, eh? How do you know that? He told me. Told you? Oh. His name is Bubo. But you're quite right, Bubo the Owl, a personal favourite of mine. Vanessa, how do you feel about the wonderful Bubo making it to the top ten? I think that's lovely. He's got in the in Clash, he's got a lovely sense of humour and, and a little quirkiness in the film that gives it a light a light feel to the film um, in quite a dark scenario with the Kraken and, and um, you know, Medusa. So um, I'm pleased Bubo's there. And unlike most of the creatures in a Ray Harryhausen film, some of them are, are large or they're quite aggressive or they're seen as the bad guys. Bubo is none of those things. And he's really magical. He reminds me of a kind of a Christmas decoration so many people, particularly when the film came out in 1981, thought it was a reaction to the first Star Wars film. And some of the reviews called him Bubo D2 
because he was part uh, Al but part R2-D2. And of course, that wasn't the case because Clash of the Titans had been written as a response to Jason the Argonauts and the scripts and the ideas for Bubo the Owl predate Star Wars by nearly a decade. Yeah, I think Bubo the Owl is amongst the most, uh, and we've, we've spoken about this on the podcast before, amongst the most uh, divisive of, of, your, of your dad's creations. But I find on social media, if we, if we post a picture of Bubo, it will get two or three times as many likes as any of the other creatures. So for everybody that dislikes Bubo, there's two or three people who absolutely love Bubo with a passion. And we keep, yeah. uh, we, we receive so many photos of people who have Bubo the Owl tattoos. You know, we've got so many Bubo the Owl, we've got a little gallery on our Facebook page of Bubo tattoos from around the world. So he's definitely a, a, a fun character that's made a, you know, a big impact on, on, a, on a generation of film fans. And as you say, Vanessa, he's, he's quite different from a lot of the other creatures in the film, which I think adds to his charm. And we have, of course, all of the versions of Bubo the Owl, because there's the full animated version that we know and recognise. There was an on-set version, if you like, an animatronics one that was held by the actors at different points in the film. And then there are two smaller models, two small-scale models. So in total, that makes four Bubos. Is that right, Connor? That's right. The two the two smaller ones I think are fascinating because there's a small a small a small you know a miniature version of Bubo, which I think you see uh, in long shots and uh, in, in his opening sequence where he's flying towards the tree. But then there's an even smaller version. There's there's a little version of Bubo that's the size of your fingernail, so delicate, and it's just fantastic. We actually we had uh, Andy Johnson, our photographer, take a, a photograph of all of those four Bubo models together and. Uh, last year for for Vanessa's book and uh, it's just great to see the amount of work that that Ray put into the sense of scale of having you know a, an animatronic bubble and a stop motion bubble and then two other bubbles uh, just for for the for the sense of scale and it's amazing and you know really wonderful that all four have survived so for people who love bubble yes we, we have a we've, we have enough bubbles to go around character very prominent in Greek mythology. We had him being converted into a, a mechanical owl. When we got behind schedule, I had to have some assistance and I got Stephen Archer. He had sort of a puckish sense of humor. So I put him on Bubo the Owl. He did most of the shots of the owl, flying and uh, on the ground. And he turned out to be quite a, a lovable character in the end. So, um, who'd like to uh, to reveal the next position? Well, I'm happy to announce this is another black and white classic. At number six, it's the Emir from 20 Million Miles to Earth, 1957. And uh, yes, a creation, I think, probably one of the most sympathetic creatures uh, from, from all of Ray Harryhausen's films. It seems to have made a, a, ben, a big impact on people who voted in our poll. Yes, and I mean, I've always thought this of the Emir because I, was, I saw it later on because I'm 
I wasn't around in the in the 1950s, but I always thought he had a look of the Kraken about him because he has that that sort of that slight sort of monkey overbite. He's coloured green. The arms looks like he goes to the gym a lot. So I, I see a lot of similarities between the Emir and the Kraken. And uh, the sequences here are wonderful, aren't they? Because we see him tiny inside a little bubble of gel as he as he kind of claws his way out he grows yeah. on the table it, it's really quite quite spooky so this kind of sits somewhere between sort of you know what we call monster movies but also horror cinema and sometimes this would paired up with other horror films for midnight double bills and there is a sense of foreboding invasion of the body snatchers of course because the creature itself has has landed from venus on a ship that crashes into the mediterranean sea off the coast of sicily italy so um quite a a, a, um, a globe-trotting production and I'm delighted to see it in there I must say it's been beautifully restored by the good folks down at the Columbia Pictures archive at Sony Pictures and it's been yes. colorized as colorized as well what do you guys think of the colorization of 20 million miles to earth which was Ray Harryhausen approved yeah no I, I liked it it's again you know it's the iconic movements and the swish of the tail and just the the the, the creature that has you know, dad's movements, and it's, it's such a Harryhausen film, really. And Vanessa, I don't know if you know this, but your dad actually makes a cameo on that film. Have you have you seen this before? He's at he's at the zoo just before the Emir's rampage. He's uh, feeding peanuts to one of the elephants, which I think is quite quite a nice little thing for eagle-eye viewers to spot. Oh, okay. Uh, but yes, the Emir, you know, a, a classic creature. The colorization looks wonderful. Um, and again, it's really great that your your dad was able to, to supervise the colorization of those films because they got it spot on. And, uh, it get, it, you know, you, you, you have the black and white, no one's ever going to remove the original versions, but it just gives you that option to, to watch the movie in a slightly different manner. Maybe for, for younger viewers, some younger people don't want to watch black and white films. Uh, and this just gives them a, a foot in the door for, for these classics from the 1950s. Uh, but yes, a very vulnerable character, one that I think you feel quite sorry for. He's not a he's he's not an antagonist. He's just a, a creature out of out of time and out of place. So he's just looking for survival. Yeah. He doesn't attack anybody unless he's attacked first. He just wants to eat sulfur. Uh, you know, he's not trying to eat anybody or eat any. He, there's a great sequence where he walks past a field of of sheep, and you know, he doesn't attack them. He's a docile creature. Uh, and yes, the obviously a very a very heart wrenching ending in in Rome in the Colosseum as the uh, as he is chased down by the Italian army. Or well, we might be thinking about the sheep. I'll have them for later. I'll have them for later. You know, <laughs> no, he's a vegetarian. He likes sulphur. But interestingly, this is one of two films to make it into the top 10 whose co-stars were an animated elephant. So Guanji, of course, there's an elephant in Valley of Guanji. And of course, there's the elephant um, that fights the emir as well. So fascinating that uh, two characters that had elephants as co-stars made it into the top 10. I wonder if there's a, there's a tip there for any other creatures wanting to be cast in creature features. Make sure your co-star is an elephant. Mm-hmm. We wanted to give it a startling effect, so we decided to make it uh, that every time it breathed our air, which the air in Venus was different, it uh, grew twice the size overnight. And that seemed to work well. Now, Vanessa, would you like to reveal we're nearly halfway through something very iconic coming up next? 
Yes, number five is the Cyclops. We are back to the seventh voyage of Sinbad. Um, and that is an iconic film in itself with, again, wonderful animation. And I'm glad he's at number five. Bit gruesome, the film, in some bits where he's roasting people over spits and whatnot. <laughs> but um, it's, 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 a good, it's a good number five. Yeah, he's often cited, isn't he, by people like Dennis Murin at Industrial Lights and Magic as being like a, a touchstone moment for visual effects. And of course, George Lucas said, um, without your father, there would very likely have been no Star Wars. So this sequence on the beach when he's fighting Sinbad, bright daylit sequence with lots of live actors and, and, a, and a giant colossus of, um, of a cyclops. It's, it's very difficult to hide the line between the special effect and the live action and your father did it perfectly and beautifully. It's a great film. Unfortunately, we don't have the, um, the Cyclops, do we, Connor? Well, we have his armature. Uh, we have the full armature of the Cyclops, uh, which is a, you know, a wonderful piece in itself. And this is another you know, amazing part of our collection because you can see what the insides of these models look like. And I think a lot of people would be very surprised to see just how thick the armature was, just how sort of robust the joints were. And, and its feet, the armature's feet, um, require three screws each for every movement. So if you think about that, every footstep that the Cyclops takes is, is um, you know, on, your, your father was unscrewing three different screws, putting them back in again, plugging them in, you know, such a, a time-consuming process. But I'm, I'm glad that the, um, the armature has survived because the Cyclops is an incredibly iconic piece. And I would have loved to have been there in 1958 amongst all of these people, you know, so, so many filmmakers have said that it was the Cyclops in particular. when it, he, he, uh, he appears so early in the seventh voyage of Sinbad, and I think that helps. He, this, this incredible orange creation bursting out of his cave. And that just seems to have been this uh, lightning bolt moment for, for all of this, this generation of, of film fans and filmmakers to say, wow, this is a stop-motion film in colour, and look at this. Look at this creature. Look at the spectacle. Uh, now, I was recently finding you know, uh, seeking out clips of the Cyclops, iconic pieces of the film to share. And it's quite difficult because the Cyclops appears throughout the film. He's in the film almost as much as, uh, as Kerwin Matthews is, as, uh, you know, as Sinbad himself, because the Cyclops appears and disappears. Of course, there, there are two Cyclops. There's one that gets knocked off a cliff, and then there's a second Cyclops that appears a little later in the film. So if you love the seventh void of Sinbad, then the Cyclops he doesn't just appear for one sequence. He's, he's woven throughout the story and uh, he's definitely sort of cemented himself as, as one of the top Ray Harryhausen creations. In the original version of Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, there were to be two Cyclopses. And in uh, Harryhausen, the lost movies, you can see some artwork where the two Cyclopses are having a bit of a wrestling match in front of some humans. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was a shame that didn't happen because maybe Ray would have kept one of those two Cyclopses um, or Cyclops Eye. What's yeah. the plural for Cyclopses? I don't like Octopi. Would it be Cyclops Eye? Cyclops. I yeah, I am, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's one for the Twitter people to come and tell us we got it wrong. Well, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they'll be in touch. But uh, nevertheless, yes, we have. Uh, you know, I think the Cyclops takes pride of place uh, right in the top five. And yeah, we love hearing people's memories of, of all of these creatures. The Cyclops is in the actual story of Sinbad uh, in another form. Uh, so I wanted to incorporate the Cyclops 
when the picture was released in Britain, uh, I was shocked to see that they'd cut a number of scenes of the Cyclops out because they thought it would frighten children, particularly where he was roasting the man on a spit, which wasn't very nice of him. But uh, that was in the Sinbad story, and we wanted to try to keep it in into the film. Right now, it's number four and a personal favourite of mine and one I voted for. Yes, I was allowed to vote in it, even though I'm only a trustee. Um, you know, I think we've all voted. I hope we all have. And I'm pleased to say, you know, ones I voted for are in this uh, top ten. At number four, Carly from The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Dance for me. <laughs> Wow, what a sequence. Again, combining all of the the, the, um, the expertise that your father had learned through all of his filmmaking right up now to the early 70s, he comes back to Sinbad. After the Valley of Guanji and things didn't go well at the box office for the film, Charles Schneer and Ray Harryhausen decided to return to their favourites, the, uh, the Arabian Adventures, to see if there was another journey for Sinbad. And Golden Voyage of Sinbad turned out to be just that, one of the most successful Harryhausen, Charles Schneer uh, collaborations. The film has iconic sequences from left, right and centre, the marvellous Caroline Monroe, uh, John Philip Law, and of course Prince Kura, the evil Prince Kura, played by the fabulous Tom Baker, who won the role, of course, of Doctor Who after appearing in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. What a wonderful film. What a brilliant sequence. It still works today. We had a, a screening of it at the Regent Street Cinema with um, with Caroline Munro and with you, Vanessa, at the restored version of it. And wow, didn't it keep people held for its screen time? It really, um, it really works. Yeah, I think, again, it's a dance sequence and it's the movement and, um, you know, it all just ties in and it just works so well. And she's a female creature, of course. You know, we, we, we spoke earlier about whether Guanji was a girl or a boy, male or female. Here, there's no doubt. And had Carly not been a female creature, I wonder if the impact would have been as great. Because, of course, as you said, she's a beautiful goddess who, who dances for Kura. But then, of course, the, uh, the battle with Sinbad. And they find the missing piece, don't they, of the, uh, of the amulet. The inside her, yeah. The inside her. I, it reminded me of when uh, you break a, uh, an Easter egg. You've had an Easter egg in the fridge and you break it and it breaks into a thousand little chocolate pieces. Um, what a wonderful sequence. And uh, Connor, can you update us on Carly? Where is she today? Well, Carly, again, has been restored by Alan Friswell. And Carly was probably the most delicate of all the models in the collection. She was in a, a special box uh, lying flat and essentially could not be handled at all. I took one look at Callie and thought, I am not, you know, I don't want to touch this creature because uh, Alan described her uh, texture, the consistency of an oxo cube. So that, that's kind of how, how fried and brittle she was. The, the latex was just crumbling to the touch. And in all honesty, Alan took this creature out of the box and said, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this. It was, it was a challenge. Uh, and I, I have full faith in Alan. I always know that he'll, he'll, he'll find a way. But Alan actually developed a new polymer compound to restore Cali specifically. He went back to, back to the drawing board 
and developed a new type of material that would that would stop uh, Kali from disintegrating and, and allow him to to repair any missing parts. Now, you think about Kali in, in comparison to a creature like Calibos, for example, she's got six arms. So that means you know, five five fingers on each arm. It's a very complex task, and this is the kind of thing that we you know we really need to uh, have Alan. Um, create a series of lectures on, on the restoration for each creature because I obviously I record um, everything that Alan does and it's fascinating how he approaches all of these different challenges. So, so yes, Kali is now sturdy and now can be displayed and uh, again will be on show proudly at our uh, centenary exhibition at the National Galleries of Scotland. But also Vanessa, you were, you were around for the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, so you were there in Malta uh, for all of these wonderful sequences um, for for Golden Voyage, and we 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 caught up. We, you obviously have, have stayed in touch with Caroline Monroe, but we caught up with uh, one of the other actors from the film, Kirk Christian, during a visit to to America yeah. last year. So um, yeah, no, um, with the Kali scene, I think Daddy was saying that um, the for the dance sequence, I think he had women dancing, but I see on Caroline she was saying that for the action parts where Kali is fighting with the Sinbad and, and his crew, that it was actors, you know, stuntmen and that. Um, so that was, you know, trying to get the timing in with that and, and getting an idea of the movement for Kali. That was, that was quite interesting. Yes, I think it was one of the most complex sequences that your dad ever put together. And we've got the kind of the diagrams that he drew in the archive of the, of the set and where everyone had to be and where Callie would be and how, how it would fit the animation and where people entered, where they left, where they were, where they were struck and so forth. So, uh, yes, a very complex piece of animation, but one that, you know, has stood the test of time. And it's, yeah, yes, it has, uh, seems to have definitely been the standout moment from the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which is one of uh, Ray Harryhausen's most beloved movies. We were originally going to shoot the Golden Voyage in India, and Kali was a result of planning the picture for India. But when we changed our mind and shot it in Spain, for many reasons, we left the Kali sequence in. We felt it would be a very good dramatic situation. So now we move things along. And uh, Vanessa, would you like to tell us where we are next and who we can see next? Uh, the next one is number three, which would be Medusa from Clash of the Titans. And this is the only film that really put the bejeebas up me. I did not like Medusa at all. Well, tell us, tell us the, that first moment. Describe it exactly what happened. Um, well, I think it's when um, Perseus is um, going into the cave to find Medusa, and it's all the shadows, and and then you hear the rattle of the of the snake bit on her, and then you see the shadow, and just the whole thing is pretty yuck. <laughs> I mean, it's beautifully done, but. I didn't really like it. I don't. I don't like snaky things. So, um, but it was beautifully done, and a lot, a lot of time spent on each individual snake movement. You know, on her head and then her body. Um, 
But uh, yeah, it was one of my least favourite ones on that. Well, it still terrifies, doesn't it? We've had screenings with young audiences um, of the film in recent times and they hide behind their eyes when Medusa's coming on. So it really has the same impact. So although, of course, everything ages, you know, the film will be 40 years next year. 40 years, can you imagine? Yet the I impact, can't believe that. Yeah, but yet the impact hasn't um, hasn't deteriorated. It hasn't lessened. It's it's still as strong with audiences as ever. And now parents are bringing their children along. So parents who were scared forty years ago are bringing their children along and can be scared again. And it's quite something, you know, when you think that, um, you know, Medusa. It's 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 a simple creature in that she's a woman. She has a snake's tail or a snake's body and some snakes in her hair. And yet. For many people, it is the number one. You know, um, most people would say, for me, it's Medusa, and then everything else follows, because it has everything, as you said. It has atmosphere, it has acting, because your father was a brilliant actor through his fingers. Um, it has um, it has pathos. You get a real sense of weight as well. As she drags herself along, you get a sense of this cumbersome body that she's been cursed with. And the sequence is just beautifully cut together. I mean, it is... It's so difficult, you know, with this top 10 to to choose the best of your father's work. In my eyes, it's all the best. They should all get gold stars and gold medals. Um, And yet in the world of things have to be ranked, you know, into a top 10 and so on, this this needed to be done for the centenary. But uh, what a a, a welcome position for Medusa. Um, I would like to have seen her at number one, but I also would like to have seen a few of the others here at number one as well. So, you know, I just I'm not the best judge of this. Uh, Connor, you're the youngest of the three of us. How, how has Medusa affected you? Well, Medusa stands out because, as you said, it's it's the closest that Ray Harry has ever got to like horror. And uh, I know I know that that Ray was a big fan of, of classic horror movies, the Universal horror films, and so forth. Uh, and it is just this fantastic mix of different elements. The music as well by uh, Lawrence Rosenthal, just just really eerie and the sound effects put you on edge and even though it's quite a short sequence when you watch it overall it's quite a short sequence it just has that incredible impact the, the darkness and the uh, the shadows uh yeah I, I think medusa is one of those sequences that you could still watch um in a, in a cinema and hear the pin drop because uh, you know it's such a, a masterful piece of work and medusa as a, as a creature it's interesting now i think a lot of people now if you ask them whether they were a fan of Ray's work or not, or whether they had watched Clash of the Titans, most people would describe Medusa as a, a snake woman, you know, a woman with a snake's body, or as, you know, a snake's tail. And actually, on screen up until that point, Medusa had mostly been portrayed as a regular woman with snakes in her hair. And it was Ray's design. Ray really um, sort of captured this in the public's imagination of, of Medusa being this combination of a, of a female and a snake with snakes in her hair as well. And that's still to this day, I, I think if you asked 100 people to describe Medusa from myth and from legend, they would describe something very similar to Medusa from 1981. So it's definitely captured the public's imagination and it's part of the reason why Clash of the Titans is so fondly remembered. And of course, yes, as you rightly say, she was a priestess who was who was banished and was cursed by one of the goddesses. And she normally appears in a white flowing robe. And uh, as you say, in other incarnations in Hammer films and so on, in the Gorgon, uh, she's like that. But um, interestingly, a female character again. And although at the time people wouldn't have recognised it, now it's quite empowering to see 
a female character like Medusa and Carly almost fighting for the top slot there because Carly at number four, Medusa at number three, and I think a, a, a not too distant sister of those two characters is the figurehead from the Golden Voyager Sinbad. I was particularly scared. I was incredibly young when I saw that film and I was particularly scared of the figureheads. I live in Greenwich, which is the naval area, and I used to see figureheads at the museum. And seeing that figurehead coming alive and tearing itself off the front of that ship, you know, and I just feel, you know, your father was channeling the figureheads and Carly for Medusa. Wow, you know, he got it exactly right each time. I didn't want to make just a normal woman with snakes in her hair. That wouldn't turn anyone into stone. So I felt we had to make her as ugly as possible and have this power in her eyes to turn people to stone. If, um, if I may now, I'll, uh, I'll reveal the penultimate uh, choice. And it is Talos at number two. It must have been the wind. Talos, wow, the uh, the sort of the King Kong of the Greek myth world. I mean, that whole sequence, again, much like Medusa, you know, 30 or so years later, it's very atmospheric. It's not a fast-paced creature fight, and yet it's made it right up there to the top. It's a more subtle form of animation. And, of course, he has the um, encumbrance of being made from copper and iron, so you can see and hear that in his movements. And, and the, 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 uh, I actually thought he was bronze. Is he not bronze? Is he bronze? I don't know. We'd have to we'll have to check with Twitter there. They'll soon put us straight. Um, and he's no eyes okay. as well. <laughs> the fact he has no eyes. How clever of your father to figure out that the scariest creatures are sometimes the ones with no eyes. Yes, like Medusa, it's another one of those sequences which has a very eerie edge to it. And when you see uh, Hercules and. John Kearney's character Hylas is uh, escaping from from uh, this um, treasure hoard that they found, uh, and Talos moves his head to to face them and with that creaking sound. It just became one of these more most iconic movie moments, and um, you know I think that's uh, that really puts shivers up people's spine to this day. This implacable face and this uh, you know this automaton. Uh, sort of chasing after Jason and his, his Argonauts. Um, it's really, you know, again, it's like, like so many of these scenes. It, it's become such a, an iconic piece. And Talos himself, I think Alan pointed this out because Alan had restored Talos quite recently as well. So t- in terms of animation, Talos doesn't actually do a great deal. He, he walks on the beach and he reaches down for the boat. But it's that simplicity. It's that, uh, you know, that steady, slow pace, this unstoppable creature that's that's giant, you know, that's so much bigger than the people he's, he's bearing down upon. Uh, and I, one, one of the, the quotes from Ray that I really like is that he'd spent so many years perfecting this art of smooth, seamless stop motion where the creature looked like it could be a living being. Uh, for Talos, he had to scrap all that and, and go for deliberately sort of jerky and stilted movement because, as you say, the, the, the creature's made of, made of bronze and he is uh, a slow-moving, lumbering 
beast, but unstoppable. And uh, and yeah, a really a really wonderful sequence. Absolutely, and great music, of course, from uh, Bernard Herrmann again. You know, Jason Yargonauts is right up there when people choose their favourite film. They say, what's your favourite Ray Harryhausen film? People often say Jason. And uh, do you have any memories of Talos particularly, uh, Vanessa? Um, no, not really. Um, I remember seeing him in the cupboard, in the display cupboard at home a lot, and everybody always seemed to graduate towards him and, and couldn't believe that he was so small and that he was so big on the screen. I was always fascinated with the Colossus of Rhodes. Uh-huh. So I thought, this is a good chance to make Talos a Colossus. Well, you, see, you, know, uh, you spend your life trying to make smooth animation. And I made it typically uh, stiff and, and so we could put the sound effects of iron wrenching against itself. So we, we spoke with John Kearney, who of course played Hylas in Jason and the Argonauts. And he, he remembered what it was like filming that sequence. And uh, one, of, one of his happiest memories was the fact that your dad was there on the beach directing the whole sequence. And they all knew that your dad was the, the man that was making the film. They knew he was the one to, that, you know, that you had to listen to. And uh, just this, this wonderful memory of falling face down on the beach and looking up to what at the time was an invisible creature. And then of course, seeing this, uh, this, this magic appear on screen. <laughs> Because, you see, when he did his job, he saw the scene. He saw the scene, which is why he was able to make these lovely artworks of his own vision of the scene. But he relied on mere fallible faces to bring it off. You know, so he just told me what he wanted and then react accordingly. In other words, John, you're afraid. That's your basic emotion. You're seeing something that's about 20 feet tall coming to pummel you. That's the main expression. And you're trying to run to avoid it. And he's after you. And you know that one step of his makes up a hundred yard sprint for you. So that's why he wanted me panicking and breathless as well. So I was running up and down before we said action. So he got exactly what he wanted. No, he was, in a sense, the kindest man to be ruthless on the film set. And that's the loveliest combination, because I would have done anything for him. You know, had I been working against a real big man being a giant, it would have been a different kind of show and a different kind of reaction. I would have reacted only to the face I see. But instead, I had an, I had no face to see. I was just called out numbers. How would you like to react to 12 o'clock? Here's the man who just played the Hamlet, reacting to 12 o'clock, 9 o'clock. But he is also running, remember. The cameraman is being pulled. And it was a, a running operation. And his direction was a running commentary. That's how I reacted to him. But in the minutes between, there was time to get the breath back, time to talk about it. That's when he gave you a purpose for the scene, where I fitted in and so on. That's fabuloso. And now, um, I think it's only right and it's only fitting that Ray Harryhausen's daughter, the fabulous Vanessa Harryhausen, reveals the final position and the final creature or creatures. Um, Number one is the children of the Hydra's teeth. Kill! Kill, kill, kill them! 
also known um, as the skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts. I know. And that, you know, that sequence is so amazing. And the time it took, and um, I think everybody always remembers that, you know, out of all dad's films, that is one of the iconic ones for the movement, the fight scene. Um, and it's it's tremendous and uh i think that's great thank you who all voted for number one for the hydra's teeth i think it's great with the skeletons and that of course originally the sequence was going to be set at night time we've talked often about this on our various podcasts and the censors said no Uh, jason was going to be chased into hades into hell by the hydra and there he was going to disturb the graves of dead soldiers who would then come out and fight him at night time when the script was submitted to the censors, they said, no, you can't have a sequence like that at a bewitching hour and receive a family certification. You're going to need to do something that's in a, in a more broadly daylight sequence. And so that's why the scene was set at daytime. But of course, the challenge for your father then was to how to hide the interaction between the animated creature and the live action. And it's much more difficult to do that in bright, sunlit sequences. And of course, he did it perfectly, as we know, because of course... It's uh, it's gone to number one, and and not a surprise at number one, but a worthy number one. It is very very much. No, it's it's the scene that stands out most, and I think for for good reason because it's one that I personally never get tired of watching. But there's so much going on in that skeleton sequence. There's so many little bits and pieces, uh, so many wonderful tricks that your dad introduced to the scene. And it's, it's just a masterclass of stop motion animation. It's very different from the, the scene we discussed previously, the skeleton sequence from the seventh voyage of Sinbad, because that's a very close up one-on-one sequence with uh, with the skeleton fighting Sinbad. This is just, a, you know, this army completely overruns Jason and his and his team. They are they're they're on the back foot from the from the from from the word go, and uh, you just see all these these wonderful all these things all these things that your dad did to, in a way, make life more difficult for himself. You've got skeletons jumping over people. You've got um, Argonauts stabbing their swords into the skeletons and then you know having no effect and dropping to the ground uh, all of these wonderful little tricks and even though it's quite a, a short piece of you know piece of film it's one you could re-watch over and over again and just you know how did he do this and what an exciting scene it's one i think that just it reminds so many people i think of happy memories of watching uh, Ray's films mm. and watching Jason yeah. and the Argonauts, you know, with their parents or or, or whoever, and uh, you know, it's really ingrained itself in the public consciousness, and especially here in the UK. When I tell people what my job is, they immediately will say, "Wow, those skeletons! Those skeletons are incredible! They terrified me as a child." Somebody asked me a very interesting question that I've never heard before. Actually, were any of the skeletons females? Could any of the female? Could any of the skeletons be a female? And I said, "Well, I don't know. I've never really thought about it." But that's an interesting question. Well, probably not, because if they were soldiers' graves that were disturbed at the time, it mostly would have been men that were sent to war. So it's a good question. But there were in in Greek mythology, there were women. Um, warriors. Yes, there were actually. And uh, I think we'd have to refer that question to our resident expert, Mr. Alan Friswell, for him to check the uh, the yes. uh, the hips. Yes. Well, someone will get technical skeletons. about the hip thing because you'll know with the size of the hips would with um, archaeology and that, that if it's a female, then the size of the, the, the way the hips are are different from a male's hips. 
We'll have to investigate that. I know, it is, isn't it? It's brilliant. Well, I think um, it's a good point. I think, you know, like Guanji dinosaur, there's no reason why all these dinosaur creations may, may not be female too. I think, uh, you know, these, uh, these creatures, you know, there's every chance, I suppose, that Guanji or some of the skeletons may have been female. Um, in which case, yes, it's, a, it's quite a balanced poll overall when you, when you see the top 10. Now, we do have yeah. the skeletons in the collection and they're in very good condition. What we don't have is one of the sequences that was deleted from the film. So there's a sequence with a skeleton that's lost his head, looking for his head. And those uh, few seconds of animation were cut from the release print. And sadly, they haven't yet been located. So if we ever do locate those, then we'll try and uh, reunite them with the uh, rest of the skeletons. But the film itself had been scanned in 4K by the folk down at Sony Pictures, who look after the Columbia Library. And on the 29th of June this year, we're having a special simultaneous screening or a simulcast of Jason and the Argonauts, which are going to be starting at 7.30 GMT, Greenwich Mean Time. So if you'd like to come along and join us from the comfort of your own home and watch, whether it's on VHS, Laser Vision, Laser Disc, DVD, or, or Blu-ray, at 7.30, we're going to kick off and there's going to be a special announcement from the Foundation first. And then we'll be straight into Jason and the Argonauts and we're going to watch along with you folks. And we're going to be tweeting, aren't we, Connor, and commenting as the, uh, as the film goes along. Yeah, it's going to be a really special moment because, you know, a lot of people are still at home right now in, in June 2020. And it's, it's great to be able to sit at home around the world, all celebrating Ray's life and films and legacy together. And we'll be able to, to live tweet and Instagram behind the scenes photos from the film and facts and, and little pieces of information but most of all just enjoy the movie you know just sit in there and enjoy this classic film once more and kind of reflect upon uh, upon its legacy and on, upon all of these creatures that we've been discussing today so yeah please join us june 29th Ray harryhausen's 100th birthday what what could be more fitting than watching uh, jason and the argonauts with with race friends and race fans across the world and we're going to be putting together the top 10 creatures as well into a video. So you're going to be able to go online now. We're going to be loading that now along with this podcast. So you can see all top 10 together. A bit like Top of the Pops for Ray Harryhausen creatures. Yeah. And I just wanted to say to everybody out there that who took the time to vote for their favourite creature in Dad's films from, you know, 1 to 10. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for keeping his memory alive. He would be absolutely tickle pink that, you know, without you guys, his memory would have just slowly slipped away. But thanks to you all, you know, you've kept this wonderful, incredible animator alive in your thoughts and, um, and his films as well. So thank you very, very much from his daughter, Vanessa. Uh, my favorite sequence, well, I suppose the skeleton was, uh, was the most trying sequence, so uh, uh, that was one of my favorites. It was, was that... the most challenging because there were seven skeletons fighting three men. So that was terribly that difficult. It was complicated to... because uh, it, one, one, when one man brings his sword down, uh, during the rehearsals he had to know where to stop. So that, and I had to get a skeleton at that point so that when he stopped his sword there was a skeleton there to, to stop it. And that required a great deal of detailed uh, planning ahead and counting the frames. Every frame of, of the live action had to be analyzed and, and charted so that uh, when they moved around, they would be at the right place at the right time. 
Lovely. Well, I think that leaves us to say thank you, Vanessa, for taking part in this podcast. We hope we can uh, we can keep you here for a few more podcasts in the future because it's always good to hear your thoughts and uh, to hear your reminiscings of, of your father. And of course, you know, the, the future plans we have, we'll be having you back and we'll be doing an in-depth investigation into your book, the fabulous Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema, which is the must-buy book of this year. So we will definitely have you back to find out about the making of that book. Okay, will do. Great. Well, that, all that leaves me to say is thank you, Connor. Thank you, Vanessa. Do tune in on uh, 29th of June at 7.30pm and we look forward to hearing all of your comments. Okay, thank you both. Thank yes, you thank you everybody for listening. The simple process of walking into a cinema one day changed my life completely. I grew fascinated with the fact that you could put on the screen uh, inanimate objects uh, such as uh, stop-motion dinosaurs and give the illusion that they are alive. And that has always fascinated me, the, uh, the art of movement, the art of, of uh, uh, bringing things to life. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2020. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustee or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.